My guest today believes that his alcohol and drug addiction became, at least in part, the reason for his success. You see, in recovery, addicts have to be authentic. But can authentic openness work in the world of corporate America? Well, with promotion after promotion, this CEO suggests that to be successful, we should do what addicts do. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. I'm going to share one of the scariest times I ever had. All right, I'm a California kid, just moved to Tennessee, and I'm working in a big corporation at Dell. And people are asking me this question. Hey, so what brought you to Tennessee? I would always sit there and I'd be like, man, do I tell them the actual answer? Are we really happy? Lonely game we play Looking for the right words to say Searching but not finding Understanding anyway We're lost in this masquerade Do I tell them I am a drug addict and I got out of rehab and they sent me to another rehab here and I am here for recovery? Or do I say something like, oh, I just like music? And I leaned into taking off my mask and living mask free. There were so many good things that happened because I leaned in to being mask free. See, we, we ask ourselves this question too often. What's the cost of taking off my mask? I think we need to ask ourselves a question of what's the cost of not taking off our mask? We're lost in a mask It is my great delight and pleasure to have as my guest, Michael Brody Waite. He is the author of a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, subtitle, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. He's a great authority on the issue of being earnest and sincere and authentic. Now, Michael's um, exposure really came about, at least on a large scale, by his appearance on a TEDx Nashville uh, YouTube video. And it has become one of the most popular in the history of TEDx, uh, not only TEDx Nashville, but it has also been seen by um, tens of thousands, millions of people, actually, literally, uh, on in on the screen in over 25 countries. And the number is growing. He is very much involved with what he calls a mask-free movement. Now, let me explain. We're living in times of masks, of, uh, of uh, legitimacy and requirement. But we're not talking about COVID-19. We're talking about something 
were far more significant. We're talking about revealing who we are and not having that presented face that so many of us go uh, brandishing about, but to remove the fakery, if you will, of who we are and to be authentic and to be real. And this is actually a venture and a style of life which is interestingly, very beneficial for people in the business world. So again, my great honor and delight in welcoming Michael Brody Waite. Welcome to Watching America, sir. Thank you. You managed the pandemic uh, challenges around the mass program very well. Oh, good. Well, uh, you know, we just got to clarify these things, lest people think for the next hour we're talking about something that we're not. I want to begin at the, the beginning, as they say, you said that there was a time in your life that from the moment you woke up to when you passed out, all you wanted to do was use alcohol or drugs. But there was a chapter before that. Tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was that environment like? I'm, I was in California. So I live in Nashville, Tennessee now. So I can actually say dude and y'all and I can't pass for both coasts. <laughs> but from when I think about my history with addiction, I actually think about being six months old and, and not because I can remember what happened, but because my dad was an alcoholic and he came home from the bar one night when I was six months old and he took me out of his crib, out of my crib, and he dropped me. Ooh. And he felt terrible about it. And so he looked himself in the mirror and he said, I can be a drunk or I can be a dad, but I can't be both. And that was the last time that he drank. But he was a dry drunk, someone who never really worked a program. And when I was a teenager, my parents sat me down and they told me, hey, you have addiction probably in your genes. You should not try alcohol and drugs. Now, I will tell you, if you're worried that your child is wired for addiction, the last thing you want to do is tell them not to do alcohol and drugs because then I became obsessed with how can I do alcohol and drugs. And I had a good childhood, you know, good upbringing, safe, you know, nothing bad. But the, the problem was I was overprotected and I had no idea how to deal with life on life's terms. And I felt terribly uncomfortable in my own skin. And so as I went from high school to college, I discovered that alcohol and drugs had an incredible effect on me. And they allowed me to numb out the pain of not being comfortable in my own skin. And that's when my addiction began. So you were eventually kicked out of school, uh, kicked out of your house. And there was a point that you were kind of slumming it, as they would say, on various friends' couches and what have you. You're wearing soiled, yep. not so great uh, trousers and jeans with a rope around your waist. And the yep. only money you could get is the money basically that you stole from your friends when they weren't aware. Uh, and then you would return right back to getting what you needed to get and then presumably sleeping on their couch yet again. Um, yep. Were you depressed or were you so numbed out of it that you didn't have an opportunity to get depressed? I, I, let me tell you exactly what I'm thinking of. Um, there is a, uh, a film which escapes me right now. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but um, it's about heroin addicts in, 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 in Glasgow. And um, uh, I'm trying to re recall. Uh, I think train it's Train Spotting. Spotting. Yes, exactly. Train Spotting. Yep. Thank you. Every and, good addict knows that movie. Yeah. And the issue is there's a terrible scene, as we all may remember, that it's a horrific scene where um, a mother discovers that her child has been neglected and is dead. And she, um, yep. once she sees that her child is dead and has had formerly, uh, eventually hallucinate seeing it crawling on the ceiling, she immediately shoots up again to avoid the pain of her child being dead. So this is constant perpetual numbing of the pain, numbing of the pain, numbing of the pain, numbing of the pain. Uh, 
in brief moments of not exactly what we could call sobriety, did you have moments of consciousness where you just detested what was going on or did you just immediately try and flush down something to not even think about that? Yeah, it's, it's a really terrible cycle because what would happen is that I would do horrible things under the influence and I would be numb and I would be able to defer feeling the feelings that I was feeling. And then I'd wake up hungover, um, really messed up. And, and then immediately I would start to feel the feelings that I've been avoiding and they would only get stronger and stronger the more I did horrible things and the more I numbed myself. And so when I got drunk or high, I started to become earlier and earlier in the day because I, I was so uncomfortable in my skin. It was like, like almost like bugs were crawling underneath my skin. That's how uncomfortable I was simply being myself. And so eventually it got to be where I didn't want to be awake and not high. Well, you did have the presence of mind to assume that you probably would not be alive, you have said, by the time you were 30. You had already concluded that. Um, there has to be a break point where... You know, the, as the old adage goes, when you flatten your back, the only way to look is up. What was that breaking moment that uh, superseded and, and came before you actually winding up in a, in a 12-step program? You know, I'll never forget it because uh, my parents had uh, been – I was house-sitting for them. They've been gone for 30 days. One night, I was up late. I was high. And I remember thinking how exhausting it was to try to get high enough. And so I decided that I was going to ingest more poison, more drugs than I had ever ingested before. And I actually had the thought that if I overdosed and died, at least I would know that I was high enough before I fell asleep for good. And that was what I was chasing. And I spent the whole night getting higher and higher and higher. And then finally, I had this moment where I was like about to pass out. And I, and I said, you know what? I'm high enough. And then five minutes later, I wanted more. And I didn't pass out. And I just started crying because I literally couldn't get high enough anymore. The work and the effort that I was putting in just to get high had become too great. And that had been the thing that had been helping me numb all the other stuff. And so now that I couldn't get high enough, I couldn't stay high enough. I was like, you know what? I got to find another way, man. I, I wish I could tell you that it was a better, you know, I want to write myself or whatever. It was literally, I couldn't get high enough. So how did you actually wind up then at the 12-step program? At one point, you are at the Betty Ford Center uh, in, in uh, Rancho Mirage, uh, California. Was that the first center you went to or the second? What, what was the progression? Yeah, so September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford Center. Uh, it was a very surreal experience. I spent the first three days telling everybody that I wasn't an addict and I didn't belong there. And I also spent those three days hearing my story come out of every other addict's mouth. And after about the 25th person shared my story and, and the way that I felt and what I had done, I said, damn, I must be an addict. And so I started to work the program in earnest. And then when I got to the end of the program, uh, I got the message that you never want to hear in treatment. And they told me that I was sicker than the other addicts. Like, how sick do you have to be to be around 25 other addicts and you're the sickest one? And they said, you just, you over-intellectualize things. You're stuck in your head. We don't think you'll be able to stay clean. So we need you to go to another treatment center. And they gave me two brochures, one for a place in California, which I loved, and another for a place in Nunnally, Tennessee. I'd never been to Tennessee. I didn't even know where Tennessee was. And I remember as I was walking back to my room, we had a saying that our best thinking got us here. And I wanted to go to the place in California. So I picked a place in Tennessee. And then I went to that treatment center and I did six months more worth of work and I've been in Nashville ever since. I've been clean ever since. 
The Betty Ford Center, a lot of people have the uh, mistaken impression that it's kind of a swishy luxury place to go simply because in, back in the day there were celebrities who were there. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor had been there, um, Liza Minnelli, people of, of that ilk and uh, um, profession. Uh, it's very, very sparse. It's very, very simple. Uh, they typically, if yeah. you're willing, will give you simple jobs like, you know, sweeping up your room every day, making your own bed. Um, what was so unbearable for you about it uh, for, say, the first five days? It wasn't necessarily the experience. Um, it was for me, it was just what it meant for my life because by taking that program seriously, I had to be emotionally and intellectually committed to a life where I was never going to use drugs and alcohol again. And I could not fathom not using them. And so for the first three to five days, as everybody was talking about how do we get sober, how do we get clean, how do we never use again, the, the thought was just terrifying to me. And so I just kept arguing for why I could continue to do what I did. And, but the problem was, is that when, again, you, you know, one of the things that we say is you, you stay long enough, you're going to hear your story come out of someone else's mouth. And when you can see yourself on display, when, when, when there's a guy across from you talking about how he had his daughter in the car and he was drunk and he was driving all around town and he can't remember it. I might not have had that exact experience, but I could relate to being that messed up and putting people's lives in danger. And you hear that 20 times and you finally go, man, I do have a problem. So you go to a second facility, as you said, you've indicated that you went to the one in Tennessee. Uh, was it there that you encountered um, essentially the 12-step the program, but then you basically, uh, I don't want to say reduced it, but I would say you succinctly put three cardinal premises associated with recovery, uh, which is part of your thesis and why CEOs need to adopt the same practice. And that is, pe yep. speaking the practice, the first one, practice rigorous authenticity. Number two, surrender to the outcome. And number three, do the uncomfortable work. You have said that addiction is the entire reason in many ways for your success. Uh, and in the 12-point program, you were initially faking it and then there came a moment when you weren't faking it anymore, and a man with a uh, menacing-looking <laughs> physique, tall, yeah. dressed in Harley Davidson uh, uh, garb, uh, said essentially, "That was the first time you've been real." Tell us about that. Yep. Yeah, I, I'd spent six months going, you know, going to different twelve-step meetings, and uh, even though I was around other addicts and I was supposed to be real, I would kind of hold back on on my deepest pain, and I would really try to make my shares sound really good. And I didn't even know what a TED talk was then, but I wanted to be like a TED talk, and I wanted people to like me and think that I was an impressive addict and an impressive human and all that kind of stuff. And then one day I walked in there. And I just had a really tough day and I really wanted to use. And, and I knew that if I didn't share that I probably would use. And so instead of having this kind of like refined share that I was practicing and a hook and a joke, um, I just started sobbing and, and sharing vulnerably about what was going on with me. And I felt incredibly um, exposed and, and, and less than afterwards because I hadn't been impressive. And so the meeting ends and I'm trying to book it out of there. I don't want anyone to talk to me. And, and the guy that you described, Tim, um, he was, uh, who was very imposing at the time, and he had 15 years clean. He was an old timer. You know, I had this big goatee, and he scared me half to death. I thought he was going to give me crap for what I said. And he said something that really kind of, I think, set the tone for my entire life in recovery. He said, you know, 
that was the best share that you've ever done. And I almost incredulous. I was like, Tim, that was the worst share I've ever done. He's like, no, it's just the first real share that you've ever done. And that's what we do to stay clean. You showed the real Mike and I want to get to know that guy. And so he not only said that he would like me better if I was authentic, but he also told me that essentially my life depended on it, that if I couldn't be authentic, I wouldn't be able to stay clean. And no one, you know, we talk about authenticity a lot and it's this aspirational notion. That's great. But no one had ever told me that I would be more liked for being authentic and that my life would depend on being authentic. And that really set a very different tone for me for my entire recovery. Well, I'm, I want to resist playing armchair analyst, but I can't uh, in this case because I, I do see a, a relationship. I, I may be connecting the wrong dots, but I do see dots and I have a propensity to want to draw lines between them. You said initially at the outset of this conversation that you wanted to overcome a feeling of insecurity. Uh, yeah. uh, the flip side of that coin is you want to be secure and you want to be liked. And so you wanted to be liked to, to, to subjugate that need you started to imbibe of drugs and alcohol. And then ironically, you wind up at a 12-step program. Again, you want to be liked. You're almost working up a routine, as you've said, with a joke and humor and a, a little piffy line here and there to present. And innately, there is this part of you, but it's not you alone. It's me. It's everybody. We all want to be liked, appreciated, and loved. Was yeah. that one of the key factors that got you? Um, indisputably involved with altering your consciousness, the idea of, by gum, by gosh, I don't know how to get people to love me, so I'll just drown myself so I don't need the love quite as much. Yes, 100%. So when I was talking about the bugs, when I was talking about, you know, as a metaphor, when I was talking about being uncomfortable in my own skin, mm -hmm. it was always when I think about how other people view me, how my friends, my family, what a failure I am. Am I not strong enough, smart enough, funny enough, good-looking, like whatever it was, and all of a sudden, I was in a new world where owning all of that stuff and giving voice and agency to that need and, and that vulnerability that we all have as humans was suddenly the cool thing. And it was, it's what saved me. Learning how to practice rigorous authenticity is something that most people don't know how to do. And I was not only told that my life depended on it, and I was not only told that people would actually like me and love me if I did that. But I was actually shown how to do it by a sponsor and by a society of other people that were doing the same. And it was a very different way to deal with life on life's terms. And it's almost like the more raw and vulnerable you could be in a meeting, the cooler you were. The more you could own that which would make you look bad to the world, the cooler you were. It, because that's where the strength is. That's where the courage is. That's what makes you a spiritual warrior. And so it was just a complete disruption of the value system that I had been socialized with up until that moment. And it was not only life-saving, it was incredibly liberating. Okay, let's go deeper. And I'm not saying this applies to you. I'm just saying I would imagine it could be a temptation. If revealing your warts and scars and all garner favor and recognition, was there any temptation on a human level to say, wow, this is working pretty good? Because we do have persons out there who um, will enjoy, it would seem, to tell the most horrific account of what they've been through and how horrible they are and what have you, because they find that they, in social parlance, have some, if you will, um, uh, ability to be able to parlay that into an economy of acceptance. Was that a temptation yep. for you? No, because uh, no matter how cool I was in a 12-step 
group talking about my challenges, it's never been cool to say I'm a, I'm a drug addict out in the world. That stigma is too significant. Unless you're Keith um, Richards. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. Yeah, I got over it, man. Yeah, it's all behind me now. Yeah, it's not, I'm not doing that no more. <laughs> right, and and you know what? Like, if I had had his success and fame, then I could probably do it. But the yes. problem was I was some kid, and, and I would even, when people would ask me why I was in Nashville, Tennessee, I would tell them I was an alcoholic instead of drug addict because people view alcoholics with less stigma than they do a drug addict. Yes, that's true. And so yes. now, now what I will say is, um, over a period of time, as I learned to practice rigorous authenticity, as I learned to surrender the outcome, as I learned to do uncomfortable work and how those principles work together to empower someone to do that, I was surprised time and time again in the most unlikely arena, the business arena, as a CEO, as, as a guy working at the corporate ladder early in my career, how, how successful I became in connecting with other people and mm-hmm. also scaling myself by using these principles. But even today... With 18 years clean, mm-hmm. knowing that people prefer people that are authentic, I still want to hide. Yeah. I am not recovered from my drug addiction, and I am not recovered from my mask addiction. The world still makes it feel incredibly tempting to try to distort things. Even right now on this interview, yes, I have a temptation to try to manipulate perception yes, so course. that I can look better than I do. Yes, we all do. We all have that. And, and I appreciate you uh, acknowledging that. Incidentally, let me remind everyone who I'm speaking with. I'm speaking with Michael Brody Waite, who has written an incredibly interesting book, um, which uh, really uh, caught my attention as soon as it came across my path. Great leaders live like drug addicts. How to lead like your life depends on it. Now, I need to give a bit of a scenario here. We don't just remain with Michael being a drug addict. Uh, he, he would say he's a recovered or recovering drug addict. In a sense, one always is. But he also wound up creating a, a great life for himself, promoted eight times in eight years, and also wound up being a CEO, which then he sold to a publicly traded company corporation. The first time venturing out, you were told at one halfway house that you had to have work within five days to get a job or yeah. you were out, which was the first real crisis. Explain that. Man, just you saying that, I'm just taken back to that moment. I didn't know how special of a moment that was. Um, so I get out of the treatment. I'm in the halfway house, drop my bags. And the guy's like, you got five business days to get a job or I'm going to kick you out because they take it really seriously. And so I go hunting for jobs. I apply a bunch of different places. I only get one interview. And, and so my entire ability to have shelter and, and stay clean for that matter, because if I'm on the street, I'm going to use. And if I'm, on the, if I'm on the street using, I'm probably going to die. So my only chance of moving into this more stable life rests on this interview at a place called Sam Goody, which nobody knows anymore. But it's like, you know, a record store, CD store back when we used to get it, you know, brick and mortar. And so I remember calling my sponsor and I was like, look, my job history has this huge gap from when I was using what do I tell the store manager? Because if I tell him that I was using drugs or I just got out of rehab, I'm not going to get the job. If I don't get the job, I am, my recovery is screwed. And I remember him telling me something that I just, I, no one had ever told me a situation like that. And he said, it doesn't matter what your fear is, tell him the truth. And I started to argue and I said, no, no, you don't understand. I won't get the job. I won't. And, and, he, and he cut me off and he was like, look, here's the deal. I've seen addicts stay clean on the street. This is not about the job. This is not about the halfway house. He said, this is about whether you are willing to practice these principles in all your affairs. This is about whether you're willing to practice rigorous authenticity, 
surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, no matter the stakes, no matter how low they are or high they are. This isn't about the job. This is about your recovery. And so I ended up going into that interview and I took his advice because I don't want to die um, as a, as a drug addict. And, and I remember, you know, as, as soon as I tell the guy that, Hey, the reason I have this gap is because I'm a drug addict, just got out of rehab. I, I assumed that he would judge me. I felt shame. I felt fear. And the darndest thing happened at the end of the interview. He said, when can you start? And that for me was a moment that completely challenged this notion that we have to hide the worst things about ourselves in professional situations. Well, you told the truth and you've tried to make that a practice. And um, I say tried to because you've been largely very successful. But even in the best of circumstances, we sometimes will fail ourselves if we're being truthful. What are you talking about, man? I'm perfect. I am perfect (laughs) at telling the truth. Yeah, so exactly. I mean, even, you know, you start out the day trying to be, I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to be authentic and what have you. And then, you know, one's wife comes into the room and says, what do you think of this dress? You go, oh, it's... um, Nice. <laughs> you, know, right. you, might, you might not like it or what have you. Um, you were promoted, as I said, eight times in eight years. Um, one of the clips that yeah. we had at the, the head of this program is the clip of you saying that you had a crisis when people would say, what are you doing in Tennessee? And, and we've played the part where you say, it was a major crisis. Do I say, oh, I'm actually here because I'm in my second rehab drug program? Or do I acknowledge that, um, uh, you know, that's the case? Or do I just simply say, oh, I like music? You elected and, as you said, leaned into the idea of always telling the people that you encountered the reality. What is the difference yeah. between that and merely being honest? Because you talk about being authentic, but there is a distinction you make between being authentic and honest. So to me, honesty is transactional. It's, it's moment by moment, and it's relatively binary. It's, it's true or false, and someone theoretically knows whether something is true or false. And so that's answering a question honestly. That's one thing. But we all answer questions honestly all the time. When you pull up to a fast food uh, restaurant, they ask you for your order, you tell them, okay, that was what you wanted, that kind of thing. But when we're under the gun, especially in challenging personal situations and professional situations where we are concerned about what other people think, whether it's a significant other, a boss, a coworker, a customer, you name it, we, our brain goes into an almost automatic mode where we start manipulating our behavior to manipulate how the other people perceive us. And what ends up happening is we start not just in one moment, but in a series of moments or a life or a career we stop doing what's true to us. We stop being what's true to us. And so one of the ways that I differentiate honesty and authenticity is honesty is something that you say or, or, or reveal in one moment. It's relatively transactional and binary. Authenticity is whether or not you are being true to yourself in word and action consistently. And the only person that can know if you're being authentic is you. And rigorous authenticity means that you're not doing it selectively or curated the way that I think we kind of see in our culture right now with authenticity being buzzy, rigorous means you are striving to never let other people's perception change your actions. And that is a different level of living, in my opinion, than just being honest. Now, I'm going to slow down. I want to change gears because I want to go to the crux of, I think, a great fear. You advocate Uh, being authentic, being real, telling people the circumstances as they are, not as either as you would want them or someone else would want them to be, but as you can see, as they are. I gravitate towards that too. I love the idea of being authentic, being real and honest. 
but we all experience being genuine and authentic with people who at the end of the day prove to be unworthy of it. Now you might say, well, they're worthy of it anyway because you're acknowledging how you are and I can understand how you would go yeah. there. But as people are listening to us right now, um, uh, there are thousands and thousands of listeners who have fallen in love with somebody, believed they love somebody, shared their innermost being yeah. with them authentically, only to have it thrown back in their face. And uh, it's extremely painful. I mean, you, it, to love, first of all, as we, as we know, is to risk. Um, you can't love unless you, you're willing to risk. But to, to feel violated, you know, we are prey for other people if we're authentic and genuine with those who would want to take advantage of us. What is your advocacy about this? For instance, you talk about in the corporate workplace, and, and I, I do need to say to the audience, and, I, and I'd like to point this out, is that Michael Brody Waite's book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, I don't think it's just for people in the corporate world, although that would seem to be the emphasis. It's actually for life skill. Uh, and everyone can apply mm. this. Uh, and so it's a much broader application than perhaps the, the title would imply. How do we go about being authentic when at the same time we're often told by our friends or our mom and dad when we're young, don't wear your heart on your sleeve, etc. In mm -hmm. a sense, to be authentic, you are wearing your heart on your sleeve. So I think that's a really great question. And that's one of the reasons that I put the last chapter in my book um, most people, you know, write a book to inspire you to live and lead a, a new way. And they end with a chapter of, you know, you're going to be able to climb out Mount Everest and you're going to end up with a Ferrari in the driveway, just like I did and all that kind of stuff and yeah. pump you up. But my book ends with a story called the tale of two divorces, where I personally had to divorce my wife, my business partner and sell the business that I never wanted to sell all in the same year not because I was authentic, but because I stopped being authentic. And explain, so, explain a, that. yeah, so I relapsed on the math. I started hiding. So let me, let me take a step back. So one of the things I've learned in, in leadership specifically, and also in life is I've, I've given this assessment to over 2000 people to identify which of the four masks people wear. And so the four masks that people wear are saying yes, when you could say no, hiding a weakness, avoiding a difficult conversation, and holding back your unique perspective. And I used to have 50, and after giving it to 2,000 people and working with companies like Google and Dell and all this kind of stuff, I was able to boil it down to these four. And people are wearing these masks every single day, and it's costing them every single day. And so when I was going through the tale of two divorces, I hit a weakness because I thought I was supposed to be the successful CEO. So I didn't let the people around me know that I was having trouble with my wife and I didn't let the people around me know that I was having trouble with my business partner. I said yes to things that I should have said no to. I avoided difficult conversations. And I found myself in a situation where I was an outsider to my own company, to my own home, practically to my own life, all because I wasn't asking for help. And so, yes, we are trained to worry about that moment where we're going to get taken advantage of. Life happens. We pay prices. We incur costs. We spend way too much time talking about that one moment where you might get taken advantage of, and we don't talk enough about how often in our personal and our professional lives, we say yes when we could say no, we hide a weakness, we avoid a difficult conversation, and we hold back our unique perspective. We don't talk about those enough, and it costs people 500 hours a year. It costs them on their deathbed having regret not living their one true life. 
It costs them actual peak performance in their personal and their professional lives. And that is a guaranteed cost that we are paying year after year, all because we're scared of that one moment where we might get hurt in a world and a life where we're going to get hurt anyway. So let's go back to the three principal uh, concepts, practice, rigorous, authenticity, which you've been talking about. Be authentic, be real as much as you can, even though you had a season of failure in this regard. In order to do that, that leads to the second premise, surrender the outcome. I want to know if you'd be willing to talk about your your business. You had the first ever digital online self-scheduling platform for healthcare in 2010. You initially had five hospitals in which you had this program working successfully. You'd come from Dell Corporation and you you, you secured a great deal of knowledge of how to do this kind of thing. You and a partner set it up. You had five hospitals. It seemed to be going swimmingly well. And then you were going to be in 38 states and really go super big, like 50 hospitals. And there was a screw up, which created a crisis. How do you tell people who have now signed on, CEOs in their own right, how do you uh, now say, okay, uh, by the way, you've signed on to this product and it's failing us. How did you handle that? Yeah, talk about that's probably the biggest outcome I ever had to surrender. So um, in the same 24-hour period, we had gotten this yes from a publicly traded company to take us nationwide. And, and that night we, we were celebrating. We were so excited. And, and just like for context, we were battling against all odds. We had bootstrapped the company, maxed out credit cards. We didn't have any connections. We didn't have any funding. We didn't have all the special things. And it was during the recession. So it was desperate times. And we were so excited because this was going to be the difference for our company. We were going to actually be able to hire employees and grow. And we were so excited. We went to bed late. And the next morning, we find out our software had failed at the hospital that this entire deal was based on. And we are contractually obligated to notify them. And we knew that the way, the level of severity of the failure meant that it would cancel the contract. So in a 24-hour period, we went from, hey, we're going to make it to, oh, my God, the entire company is going to tank because if we lose all their business and we don't expand, we, we're, we're toast. And then my employees are going to be looking for jobs and I'm going to be bankrupt. And someone on the team said, you know what, we don't have to tell them because it only affected one patient. It only affected one hospital. And neither of them know. We are the only ones that know. We can just fix the problem and keep going. And for me, I'd never been the leader of a startup before, but as a recovering addict with eight years clean at the time, I knew how to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. And for me, I had to do that no matter the situation. That's why I'm talking about authenticity is not just about selective. And so I chose to actually identify the outcome I was scared of. So I was scared of going bankrupt, company being ruined. And so I distilled everything down into what I can't control and I can't control. I couldn't control what was going to happen. I could control what I did and whether I could live with my own decisions. And so I ended up doing the uncomfortable work and I called up the customer and I told them and I braced for the cancellation of the contract and our entire company being ruined. And instead, they said that they were not accustomed to people calling over such a small error. And so instead of canceling our contract and ruining our company, they moved even faster in expanding with us. And the most important thing about that story is I had to be willing to surrender the outcome of what it meant for the company and for me personally and for my team. But because I did, I got to tell every new employee and every new customer that story. So they knew that we weren't just checking the box on surrender, checking the box on authenticity, that we were for real. And that's what helped build the company. 
Uh, let me just remind everyone, I'm speaking with Michael Brody Waite, who is the author of Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, subtitled How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. Uh, Michael has come up with three key themes, um, partly culled from uh, 12-step programs, but they amazingly work in the business sector, the corporate sector. Number one, practice rigorous authenticity, which we've been talking about reasonably at length here. Then to be authentic means that you have to be willing to surrender to the outcome. It may not go the way you would prefer. It may not go the way you would like. And then as a result of discovering whatever the outcome is, you might have to do some uncomfortable work in the process. Uh, As Michael has just declared and shared with us, he was willing to do that much to his favor and the establishing of a major, major corporation. I've experienced this in a very limited way um, uh, over and over and over again, not on a scale, obviously, with the money involved that you've had, where I've just been very candid with people. And I've been fortunate that I've always found that when you are candid, uh, it's never quite as bad as you think. Uh, and most people are are reasonable and actually they they appreciate one being sincere and genuine and will respond in kind. Um, Let me just uh, move on to other factors that I I think are are interesting and that is, you know, your willingness to acknowledge that you've also gone away from your own credo, if you will, of of what you think is important and you've failed in that regard. How do you get back on track again and say, okay, you know, godly, geez, I'm going around the country, I'm I'm, uh, in demand speaking at places. Do I tell people that I actually unintentionally disavowed this very practice by having a failed marriage, a a failed business dealings and what have you. How do you muster, if you will, the confidence to say, okay, yes, I've got warts again. Here they are and I'm moving on. I think for me, it's the resilience uh, that I I was just trained in when it comes to being a recovering addict because I've never been perfect at applying the 12 steps to my life. And so as a sponsor and a sponsee of other recovering addicts, we focus a lot and talk a lot about character defects. And while we are always striving to be the best version of ourselves, we fail all the time. And so one of the things that was beat into my head in early recovery was there's no such thing as being recovered. It's an incurable disease addiction. So you will always be in recovery and there's no destination that you're trying to achieve. You're just trying to have one more day clean. So for me, it was really easy in some ways intellectually to accept that as much as I believe I coach a lot of people on how and companies on how to live and lead mass free and how to, how to use my program in my book. And one of the things that I tell them that, it, that they're always like a little shocked by is, Hey, I don't do this stuff perfectly myself. And, and here is the mask that I'm wearing this month. Like I can tell them what mask I'm working on every single month because I have never been able to fully, you know, practice rigorous authenticity, certainly the outcome and do uncomfortable work perfectly And so the cool thing is that when we fail, like when the pandemic hit, my director of operations, her name is Brooke, wonderful human being. She told me that she was incredibly disappointed in me because for two weeks, she kept asking, how are we going to respond to the pandemic? And I just kept saying, I don't know. And she really wished that I had let her in on what I was thinking. And so I had to go back to her and say, you know what? I was hiding a weakness. I as a leader didn't know what to do. And so if I ever slipped, on living this way of life, the key is, I know this is going to sound crazy, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work in acknowledging our failure to use those principles. So literally, I took off the mask of hiding a weakness. I surrendered the outcome of what my coworker would think that the mask-free leader was wearing a mask. 
I identify what I couldn't control. And that was how she saw me, how she reacted and the fact that I had done it. I identify what I could control, which is how I communicate with her, when I communicate with her. And then I identify with the uncomfortable work, which was sitting down and telling her exactly what I was thinking, exactly what I've been going through and acknowledge and own the fact that I had failed to live up to my own principles. And that's one very small example but whenever I find myself not practicing these principles, it's the principles and this system that allow me to own that and then continue to move forward. Billy Joel used to sing, honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. In the workplace, it can certainly seem like that. Um, one can have the best of intentions and then you have you know, perhaps a bivy of persons in, in, in a corporate environment who uh, try to work around you and undermine what you're doing uh, unbeknownst to you. And, and then you have to try and say, hey, I'm going to clean this up and, 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 and what have you. Um, politics is the worst form of this. We, we do not permit politicians to say, I made a mistake. I was wrong. Yep. Um, I get frustrated not with the people who screw up, but I get frustrated with those around us who will not permit people to screw up. One of the things I, I love is when you were doing a series of interviews to have uh, your multiple employees, you would say, what is your greatest weakness? And you got the, you know, mm -hmm. the pablum, the pat answers of like, well, I guess my real problem is I'm – Everyone says I'm inclined to work too hard, you know, and you just, it's like, <laughs> yep. you know, ad nauseum, you're just like, oh my gosh, how do you, how do you handle that? How would you handle it when you, when you've got the person who would say, I work too hard. I, I find it hard to put time aside for myself because I feel guilty. I should be doing more for the corporation. How, how did you, how do you handle that? It's so sad how consistently you get that answer too. Um, uh, well, the first thing is I would I would say to them, I'd say, hey, that's a great interview answer. You just took something that I would perceive as a positive as an employer and you tried to frame it as a negative. Applaud to you for the effort <laughs> for the interview questions. That's great. But I don't I don't like that answer. So I'm going to ask again, as a human being, what is your greatest weakness? Yes, human beings. What I would, yes, that's good. I love that part. Yes. yes. But, but, well, and here's the thing. I would get these big like deer in headlights because everybody asks the question, what's your weakness? Nobody asks that question next. And they would be like, um, I, <laughs> I spend too much time on social media. And so what I've learned with being an authentic leader is, you know, Simon Sinek wrote a great book called Leaders Eat Last. Well, I, I think differently. Authentic leaders go first. You have to set the tone. So then when, when they would strike out on that second attempt, I would go first. And I would tell them something that was truly my biggest challenge at the time. And especially when I was building my company, I would say, hey, you know what? Let me show you what I'm looking for. As a human, I work really hard. I make tremendous sacrifices to be successful. But when I experience success, I cannot enjoy it. And it kills morale. We don't celebrate wins at the company. It kills morale. It makes my household stressful and, and unhappy and not joyful when we're successful. It strains my relationships with the people around me. I can't frame this as a positive. It's something that I need to work on. Now it's your turn. What is your greatest weakness as a human being? And then if they, if they couldn't go there and they continue to say superficial or continue to try to sell, I knew I couldn't trust them to be authentic with my team, my customers. And so I wouldn't hire them. I would take the B plus player that could answer that question right over the A plus player every day of the week. There is a national Italian food chain, and um, they are known for their commercials. Their commercial campaign is that at our blah, blah, blah restaurant, your family 
And whenever I eat in this restaurant, I always think to myself, no, I'm not family. You know, family doesn't give me a check at the end of my meal uh, and expect me to go to a cash register to pay for it. You know, um, you've dispensed with this myth of the corporate world or any business where they tell you, we're family here. And you gave a, yeah. a wonderful illustration with your daughter. I'd love to hear it again. Yeah. So uh, it's a real temptation for startups to say that they're like families. And so when I would hire people, I would always say, you know, this isn't a family. And, and so uh, when I go and I coach and I talk to other companies, they'll be like, well, we no, we are a family. I'll be like, all right, so let's, let's play out that assumption. So if you're a family, then let me give you an example of how that would mean that a real family is supposed to operate. So let's say I'm on the soccer field with my daughter. She's running around playing soccer. She's four years old. If, if you guys are a family, that means my family's like you. So if she's not successful with kicking the ball, I'm going to pull her aside because soccer is really important to us as a family. I'm going to say, Amaret, your performance on the field is not necessarily indicative of what we expect in this family. So I'm going to put you on a performance improvement plan. And if you can't improve as a soccer player, this may not be the right family for you. Every business, whether you are a CEO, a chairman, or a frontline employee, you are at risk of being performance managed, but we do not performance manage our children that way. But let's just play this out even further because there are other things that are completely different. Let's say she's 12 years old and the economy has gone in the gutter. She, she, if, we, if, if, a, if a company runs like a family and a family runs like a company, then that means she's going to find me asking her to step into her office, which is really her bedroom with stuffed animals, sit her down and say, Amaret, <sighs> revenue is down for the family. So unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go because your position has been eliminated. We've noticed that you've been eating more food lately, which is driving up expenses. Our revenue is down. We simply can't afford this position. So we're going to offer you a severance. Here's two weeks worth of snack packs and a relocation service that's going to find a family that can actually afford your eating habits. If companies are like families, then families are like companies. And that is not true. Not passionate about it. I'm glad. No, no, I love the passion. No, I, I agree exactly. I mean, I've thought this for thirty odd years. I, I hate this just tripe. Your family doesn't fire you normally. Um, one of the things I was impressed by in the book is you make reference to the fact that waiting for someone to come to us with their struggles in a corporate setting or elsewhere is 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 really not going to be helpful. They're, they're not going to come to us unless we're willing to go to them first, acknowledging our struggles. I do that in the university classroom. I will typically start by telling students something which people don't expect. First of all, people think I was raised wealthy. I wasn't. I was actually uh, homeless as a child uh, for a while and, and had a yeah. very bad situation with a dependent uh, father, dependent on substances. But more than that, uh, I stayed back three times. I never went to high school, uh, which people are always shocked about. And um, I had a most erratic education. I didn't know the alphabet uh, fully when I, even by the end of the, the third grade. Um, so I, I had, you know, all these dis failings. But I tell my students, university students, right up off the bat, I want them to know because most people, it's my contention, go through education terrified. They're terrified. Mm -hmm. They're terrified. And you need to alleviate that terror and say, look, I know what that terror feels like. And so, you know, whatever discipline you, you teach, there's always going to be students in your class or subject matter who are not going to enjoy it. And I say, for me, it's math. I was deplorable at math. I was terrified. As soon as I do that, Michael, there is an accord that develops between me and all of my students. So I mm -hmm. think the, the key thing, and, and, and you hit upon this uh, replete 
in your philosophy of, of leadership is to acknowledge where you are weak and then in actual fact, you are strengthening everybody. Um, was there a key moment when you realized that this would apply in all forms of leadership? I think for me, um, I think when you think of leaders, you think of people that are really strong and, and they're almost supposed to be superhuman. But the problem is, is that th there's this problem with humans. We have our humanity. And so that means that we are imperfect and we all have our defects of character. We all have our challenges. And when a leader ignores or obscures their humanity, it means that everybody else's humanity is a liability to them. And it's something that they can't escape. And that immediately creates a dynamic where you're live, where you're not willing to show your true self. And so I remember, you know, in recovery learning, wow, like my, me being authentic and showing my humanity is actually a good thing here, but can it really work? in the real world. And so, you know, I worked my way up through Dell and it turned out that I was more successful because I could say no to things that other people were saying yes to. I aggressively shared my weaknesses and so on and so forth. But I think the moment that really proved this for me was when I was the, and this isn't in my book, but when I was the CEO of Inquicker and we had just been on a national TV program, I felt so scared because we had all this exposure and I had no idea how to be the CEO of a startup. And I, and I like, I had, I had, you know, an email title that said CEO, but I had no idea how to be a CEO. And I remember thinking, I'm going to screw this up somehow. And, and I remember talking to a sponsor and him saying, you're just another dude in recovery. And so I go into a 12 step meeting and I'm looking around, I'm like, well, how, you know, it's hard to be a CEO, but it's even harder to get clean. How did I do this? And I was like, Oh, I did this by owning my growth edge. The only way you get clean from drugs is when you admit that you have a problem. And so this thought occurred to me that was terrifying. And it was, I want to go to my team and tell them I have no idea how to be a CEO. And everything in my head said, if I do that, I will lose them. If I do that, they will not believe in me anymore. And I will get fired somehow, or I'll lose the opportunity, whatever. And everything said that I can't do that, but my recovery said otherwise. And so I went to my team and I said, guys, I don't know how to be a CEO. And they rallied around me, yes. helped me find a mentor. Yes. And, and actually they helped me access a solution that I couldn't see. And they helped me become a better CEO because of it. When that happened, I started to realize, man, this is great. But you know what was even more special was six months later, Seeing that in my corporate environment, everybody was hiding their mistakes. Suddenly, my team was not hiding their mistakes. They were putting them on the table, and then we could all help each other grow. And I was like, wait a second. If we had companies where people literally spent zero time covering up their mistakes or insecurities or failures, how much more effective could we be? And my company effectively became an experiment for that question, and that's why we were so successful. There is a, a man called Andy Stanley. Uh, he's in Georgia. He actually speaks as a motivational speaker in a secular environment. But I he, love Andy Stanley. You know Andy Stanley. Okay, good. Uh, uh, Visioneering was a book that I read building and quicker. It was very helpful. Yeah, he's, it's a great book. And people just think, you know, that, that there's a tendency to perhaps want to dismiss him as, you know, some pastor of a, you know, but he's got, he's got North Point Church in, in Georgia. But his whole approach is and has been with his staff. Look, if you screw up, we want to help you. We're not going to, you know, uh, throw you to the ground. We're not going to toss you aside. We're actually going to help you with whatever is the problem. All we ask is that you just be honest with us about it. 
And um, he has built such a base of loyalty. And it sounds that you are able to create that same kind of environment from just the, the, the willingness to, to be vulnerable. You know, if we can say, I'm not that strong, I'm not that great, I'm not that perfect. In fact, I'm a screw up in many ways. I think that that is incredibly empowering for others not to be afraid. And, I, and I've said this a lot on the show, and I, I'm, I'm, you, you've inspired me to, to pontificate. So my producers are probably saying, shut <laughs> up, Alan. But I think, I think most of us live in fear that can be eradicated if we're just honest. And that's basically so much of the thesis of what you're saying in this book. Michael, I respect you so much. Uh, I res- Thank you. Same here. Yeah, I, I respect your humanity and uh, spirit and earnest striving to be true, which is terribly scary and painful in the process. And yet you do it. And um, it's good to talk to you. I'm so proud to have you on my show. I really am to have you on Watching America. It's been an honor on this side. You've, you've asked some of the most thoughtful questions, and it's been a true joy to be able to have this conversation. The book is entitled Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It by Michael Brody Waite. A fabulous read, um, but as I say, far more expensive than just dealing with the corporate world. Um, I wouldn't say it's a misnomer because it does have application in the corporate world, but it's, uh, it's transformative for one's life in relationships. This has been Watching America. I've been your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Again, my guest, Michael Brody Waite. I highly recommend the book. Take care. It's been great. And God bless. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni and CEO Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.